Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stop making myths turn to issuing proclamations. Your guides for this journey, my co-host, the novelist Phil Cly, and me, the knocker-off of tall hats, Jacob Siegel. May you continue to be a person. Walter Kern, brothers and sisters. That's who we've got today, one of the best and last specimens of the endangered species known as the American writer. Walter's written a number of well-known novels. He's been a journalist for places like Time Magazine. He's written essays for Harper's. And he just launched a new newspaper called County Highway with David Samuels. That is, a real deal, unfolded on the front porch. Tuck it under your arm on the subway. Smoke them if you got them. Hot off the presses. Physical newspaper. But today, we're going to be talking about Walter's 2021 essay, On Bullshit, which he published on his substack, Unbound. Let me read you a passage. Every morning, there it is, waiting for me on my phone, the bullshit. It resembles, in its use of phrases, such as knowledgeable sources and experts differ, what I used to think of as the news. But it isn't the news, and it hasn't been for ages. It consists of its decomposed remains in a news-shaped coffin. The information it imparts, if one bothers to sift through it, is information about itself, about the purposes, beliefs, and loyalties of those who produce it, the informing class. They're not the ruling class, not quite, but often they're married to it or share therapists or drink with it at Yale Bowl football games. They're cozy, these tribal cousins. They cavort. They always have. What has changed is that the press used to maintain certain boundaries in that relationship, observing the incest taboo. It kept its pants zipped, at least in public. Now, the quality of that writing speaks for itself, but here we all are stuck with the bullshit Walter describes, and that dilemma led to what I would call another spirited conversation with Walter and I pressing the offense, and Phil not just standing his ground, but counterpunching. Anyway, you'll hear all that for yourself in the first half of the conversation. In the final segment, we talk about Mark Twain and his 1899 essay, My First Lie and How I Got Out of It. Walter picked this particular essay, but it was me who had recommended Twain after being unable to decide on an appropriate selection from Charles Portis. And speaking of that, dear listener, I can assure you that we will talk Portis on some future date. But for now, Twain, who seemed to be the right choice because of the line that runs through certain American writers, such as Mr. Twain and Mr. Kern, whose charge is to cut through the highfalutin lies and expose the bullshit, but without turning mean-spirited or nihilistic or small-hearted. I leave all that to you to judge for yourself as we delve into this latest installment of Manifesto, which is brought to you, as always, by our faithful sponsor, Fairfield University, a private Jesuit university in Fairfield, Connecticut. Now let's get into it. Thank you so much for being here. Great to be here. Great to have you. So the bullshit is published in July of 2021, but I am wondering... How long had you been thinking about it prior to writing it and then publishing it? Had it been percolating for a while or was it like one feverish night when it all came out? 
Well, it had probably been percolating like everything for longer than I knew, but I was only aware of it being up there for three days. Um, uh, my my wife came down one morning and she saw me on my phone and she said, uh, what are you doing? And I said, oh, you know, reading the bullshit. And uh, there are two meanings as far as I know to that word. One is, you know, outright lying. You're bullshitting me. And the other is just a bunch of crap. You know, it's stuff you wade through. I, you know, I got a bunch of bullshit to do today. Um, and uh, in this essay, I think I use both meanings, uh, try to keep both alive at the same time. And what I'm referring to specifically is the daily flood of information posing as news that comes in on the phone or the Apple News or whatever service pushes stuff at you. Um, and uh, it came out pretty quickly once I had uh, articulated that to my wife. I, uh, she, I think she said something like, you know, you should write an essay about that. And I said, oh, that's like writing an essay about the air or, or you know, life because it's everywhere and it's constant and it doesn't stop and you live in it. But I tried to pull back a little and make it a phenomena rather than just a state of being. Yeah, and you, you're writing it as a former newsman yourself, right? So the the essay opens with you recounting having uh, spent what sounds like, you know, some formative years at Time Magazine. Uh, and I'm not even going to paraphrase it because your description of Time Magazine's yes, function man, is so excellent, Phil. You have that in front of you. Yeah, you, were, you described the task at Time as grounding the American mind in a moderate shared reality. You say that task is dead. The whole concept seems strange now. The American mind, a cloud of ideas, opinions, and sentiments floating somewhere above the Mississippi. But at time in the 90s, before the internet made its approach seem sluggish and slashed its readership, it was still possible to regard our product as unifying and, in its way, definitive. Mm -hmm. And that, by the way, because when I read something that's trying to, to get at the the sort of shift in how we consume news that seems really really important this sense that there is a shared reality that there are organs that have some degree of um ability to shape it and present it for us and you know i, I was thinking of as i was reading this i was thinking of benedict anderson's uh, book imagine communities where he's talking about the shift from like sacred time to calendrical time Mm -hmm. and the role that the 18th century, 19th century novels, and then also really importantly, newspapers um, mm -hmm. play in that where, you know, every day somebody, uh, there's this extraordinary mass ceremony, the only, almost precisely simultaneous consumption of the newspaper as fiction. We know that particular morning and evening editions will overwhelmingly be consumed between this hour and that, only on this day, not that. And the significance of this mass ceremony, Hegel observed that newspapers serve modern man as a substitute for morning prayers, is paradoxical. It's performed in silent privacy in the lair of the skull, yet each communicant is well aware of this, that the ceremony he performs is being replicated simultaneously by thousands or millions of others, of whose existence he is confident, yet of whose identity he has not the slightest notion. And, and it's, um, you know, this is what matters. These are the things that are happening in this shared world that you feel connected to. 
and it's organized according to particular times, right? It's not a sort of incessant deluge, mm-hmm. um, which is not. It wasn't deluge. an incessant deluge. Right. But I mean, I mean, even that sounds dated now, like that. Right. The notion of the of the news as replacing the sacred. Yeah. I mean, who's reverential towards the news anymore? Even the people who are most consumed by it, it's not a reverential attitude they have. It's like a psychotic, toxic relationship or something. Yeah. But it's not a, you know, the news isn't like a hymnal or something. Maybe I, I could see that it once was. Good evening. I'm Ron Burgundy, and this is what's happening in your world tonight. A La Jolla man clings to life at a university hospital after being viciously attacked by a pack of wild dogs in an abandoned pool. Hey, everybody! Shut the hell up! Ron Burgundy's on! I would just add one additional definition, Walter, to your two meanings of bullshit. There is, in New York in particular, a more positive connotation for a certain kind of bullshitter. You might refer to somebody as a bullshitter and you Mm -hmm. would basically mean that, you know, it's like a mild, it's not exactly a compliment, but it's like half a raconteur. They're not really, you know, they're like half a raconteur. (laughs) You would, you would enjoy their company. And I think there's something in the news environment you're describing this sort of addictive aspect of it where you know that it's bullshit and yet you can't resist it that plays on that third meaning as well that you know you want the lurid drama of it well yeah it's kind of an irish compliment it's like somebody who peddles blarney um and is at least amusing and at least diverting um and, and and new york you know with its tabloid history does still have that uh, have that quality in its press. You know, when you read the post headlines, you might know that they're exaggerated or, 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 or pitched for effect, but it kind of puts a smile on your face, even when it's terrible news because of the headline and because of the sometimes extreme reporting and the way they characterize people or caricature them. Um, yeah, that that's their. Team. I mean, the, the the post is is still kind of delightful. <laughs> to yeah. be honest, they have yeah. they have some fantastic weird reporting um, that uh, that I still still enjoy. I'm on a text chain where every once in a while we'll send some utterly bizarre um, piece that really could have only appeared in the in in the Washington in the New York Post, and it'll just you know best newspaper in America, and it'll be you know whatever it is, the, I think my favorite one is the post had an article where they sent somebody to do investigative work to determine who was the source of the largest number of 311 noise complaints for loud sex in New York city. And (laughs) that's a fantastic story. Oh, it's great. And, and at first they thought it was this one woman, but then the mother came forward and it was actually her. And she was like, self-sacrificially saying that she was the one having loud sex because people were blaming her daughter. But there's a self-awareness there, right? Yeah, that is the er But there's a self-awareness. The Post isn't putting that out and simultaneously claiming that this is the righteous moral cause of our time, whereas (laughs) the people suppressing the Post, peddling their own bullshit, 
right. a much more pernicious, sinister bullshit, suppressing the Post's reporting on the Hunter Biden laptops, who look down their noses at the Post's, you know, who would view the Post's like salacious sex reporting as low class and and whatever, uh, you know, unserious. Um, but the Post knows that it that stuff is uh, they know what it is. And and the other kind of bullshit, the danger of it is that it doesn't know what it is. Right. I think. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, I mean, the Post grabs whatever it thinks is going to be most engaging that morning, um, not necessarily that which is the biggest story in terms of policy or some other grown up metric. Um but, you know, I was going to I was going to go back to what you said before about the news allegedly replacing the daily devotionals. Hmm. That was a big part of old movies and so on. You know, dad at the head of the table opening the morning paper and expounding on that day's lesson, as it were. And, and I think when I worked at Time, we were still in that phase. You know, Time only came out once a week and. It's it's uh, implicit claim was that over a week, a lot happens. We gather up the most important stuff. We filter it. We make sense of it. And uh, we we provide a context for living kind of um, a, a world which in which conversation can take place because you all have basically the same information about the same stuff. And. You know, I can't tell you how many times when I was writing Time Magazine articles, I'd come to the end and I'd have to claim something like this. Even if it doesn't turn out to be the case, everything that we've just said, um, you can be sure that it's still important. Or <laughs> in other words, we always left room for the notion that We've just told you something and we've been quite specific and maybe even given an opinion on it. But but maybe it's not the case and time will tell. There was always this time will tell ending. Um, and that is a tip off to what our real intentions were, which were not to get you to do something or to vote a certain way necessarily or to you know behave a certain way. We wanted you just to feel moored in, in, in reality. Um, it might change. It might not be the final word, but uh, this is kind of what reasonable people are thinking. That was at least the pretense. Um, and it was to keep you in the stream, so, so to speak, not, not totally updated. We couldn't update you to the minute because we only came out once a week not ideologically pure because we sort of eschewed ideology in general um, and uh, not necessarily deeply informed because we only had so many pages, but we wanted to keep you part of society, part of the somewhat thoughtful, engaged, but acknowledgedly busy America, you know, um, we, 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 we boiled things down for you because we know you're busy. That, that era ended and it ended, you know, pretty markedly around the early 2000s when we realized that the internet and the speed of the internet 
had made a kind of joke out of the notion that you could sit a whole week with certain information and be good. Um, you know, we had someone whispering in your ear constantly from the moment you got up in the morning and updating everything or pretending to update it. You know, one thing I learned at time is there's not as much news as people think. We sometimes would struggle to put together a whole issue for a week. That, that's, that's, a, that, that's funny now because now we have, it, it seems, the ability to fill every hour of every day with quote-unquote news. And the fact is there just isn't enough happening to do that. To, filling that time depends on repetition, um, sort of fake detail, uh, zooming in, creating controversy over little things, and then reporting on the controversy. It actually takes work to have as much news as we have now because events don't actually support it. It's amazing when you think about it, how, how much inertia and continuity there is in normal life. You know, there just aren't big murders all the time. Um, but, but the internet has managed to define a news story as some comment that somebody made. And then the reactions to that comment, a tweet can be news now. Um, they've defined it down so much that it seems like it's happening constantly. And I think the biggest lie that the news tells is that there's news all the time because there isn't. Well, insofar as there was once, and look, my father used to tell me that when he was a kid, they would he would get the, the early morning edition of the paper, he would get the late morning edition of the paper, and there was an afternoon edition of the paper and, a, and a, an evening edition. And insofar as those physical newspapers contained news, mm -hmm. most of what filled them up was not the headlines on the front page, which was, you know, the more um, attention grabbing stuff. It was a lot of beat reporting, mm -hmm. institutional reporting. Right. And so at the same so what, what you're describing, Walter, where there's just not enough news, those institutions have been systematically dismantled at the local level, consolidated in these vaporous, cloud-based, whatever the hell they are, megastructures. Right. And this constant churn of news that we have now, it's, it's not an accident, I don't think, that the expectation that there should be a major emotionally uh, defining news event occurring virtually at every moment coincides with the dismantling of those institutions and the beat reporting that used to create much of the actual news. There's a good phrase. Um, I think it's uh, John Robb who came up with it, but he says that the function of the news is no longer news gathering as such, you know, reporting on the world. It's emotional conjugation. So the reason why, you know, you could take a tweet and create a news cycle out of a tweet or a tweet, and then the reaction to the tweet, and then the, you know, the news function now is to take these non-events, pseudo-events, as Daniel yeah. Borston called them, yeah. and then provide an emotional conjugation. It's just telling people, like, this is the emotion. It's like Philip K. Dick's mood organ, you know, in um, mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. What's the, the mood organ is in Do Android's Dream, right? It's just like playing the mood organ. This mm-hmm. is the thing you should feel at this time. And um, I don't know what it is. Bullshit, well, I guess. Once, once, once you're on that emotional uh, string uh, and, and you're used to the yo-yo, when you wake up in the morning and you expect something and don't get it, uh, you're out of the, you're out of the customer, uh, base, you know, you might, you might not come back. It's like a TV show that doesn't have a big opening. Um, you expect every episode of a TV show to have some, you know, uh, eventful beginning. And since it's, not just entertainment, but like you say, kind of an addictive substance, you better keep getting those hits and they better be found somewhere. And intensity matters. And so uh, you wonder if anybody's ever asked themselves, why is there so much more news than there used to be? It's because it's the expectation that, that, that I get a big spurt of some you know, neurotransmitter every day is absolute now. Um, it must provide. If it doesn't, someone else will. It, you know, if this particular station or this particular newspaper or whatever doesn't provide, you can go elsewhere for it. So <clears throat> when I when I read about a piece like this, I mean, I, I think it's it's easy to point out the the problems with the contemporary way that we consume news. I think there's also, there are other sides to that, which is, okay, you know, at Time Magazine, you're provi- providing the sort of authoritative account. And, and actually to go back to that that bit about that Hegel, reading the morning newspapers, the realist's morning prayer, one orients one's attitude toward the world, either by God or what the world is. The former gives as much security as the latter in that no one knows, in that, in that one knows how one stands, mm-hmm. right? And, um, and I think Time Magazine is, is, is pitching that, you know, here's where you stand in a particular, in a particular way with a particular set of, you know, ideological assumptions. Um, and I'm not just talking about political ones. I mean, uh, at one point you say it was an article of faith at time that the findings of social sciences, scientists simplified for popular consumption, ranked with hard news as a source of public enlightenment, Right. Mm-hmm. Um, which, uh, uh, serious violation of Auden's diktat that thou shall not sit with statisticians, uh, nor commit a social scientist, uh, so- social science. Uh, and actually the next line is thou shall not be on friendly terms with guys in advertising firms, which mm-hmm. feels like time magazine is just, uh, really by, by the way, Phil, j- just to pause, I'm, I'm not, I'm not idealizing or championing. Oh, I don't think you are. Yeah. I'm simply saying that that was the approach at one point in order to sort right. of alienate us from the current one to realize it wasn't always so. Yeah, I mean, I th- that's what I that 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 line stuck out to me, and it didn't seem that you were. It seemed that you were sort of winking at the reader with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, especially after the data replication crisis and social science and all the other problems, it just seems mm-hmm. a little bit more amusing now. But you know, right now, I do think that there's the same approach that people have towards the news, towards the bullshit, where one is figuring out how one stands. It's just done in a different way. It's often more ideologically pitched. At the same time, I think that 
one of the things with the constant stream is that for a person who wants to actually be informed about an issue, mm-hmm. um, it's actually much, much easier to dig into the details of something. So to, just to go back to the social science thing, there's a, um, a blog called Data Colada, which has been investigating um, fakery in social scientific reports, mm-hmm. right? And they uncovered that data had been faked in, in amusingly a variety of, of uh, social scientist studies about lying. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also, uh, and, and one of their targets is this um, researcher named Gino, who, who's had several papers retracted, Harvard did its own in, uh, internal investigation. Anyway, Gino launched a lawsuit against Data Colada for pointing out, you know, sort of serious issues they had with her papers that suggested that data had been faked. Um, if you read, say, the Washington Post's account of the lawsuit, you get this like kind of attempting to be even-handed uh, approach to this lawsuit. But if you if you really want to dig in, it's incredibly easy to actually, you know, look at the original stuff on the blog, look at other informed commentators talking about, uh, talking about this. You can actually dig into the issue and figure out what's actually happening. And that occurs in a, in a, in a whole variety of ways. One of the reasons that I think it's hard for beat reporters now, you know, if there's say a news event, say there's like, all right, you're going to have a, an article on, um, you know, some event that's happening, a reporter is going to know who to talk to in the relevant industry, get quotes from experts. But right now you can go on a social media app and find extremely informed people talking about what they know, what they don't know. Um, there's, you have so they say immediate, you have immediate access. You can find people on social media purporting to be extremely informed. I mean, the it, tough it, thing it, for it, beat it, reporters it, it, is it, they don't exist anymore. Right. Because right. there are all these people purporting to know what they're talking about. So the, the, the question for me is whether the current world in which you have this more chaotic environment, right, whether that actually enables people to sort of figure out what's going on better than a world in which you're given an authoritative source who may or may not actually be as authoritative if, uh, as you want. I mean, the sort of failures of, of the news industry with major events, you know, um, from the invasion of Iraq, Vietnam, et cetera, et cetera, are, are, are well documented. And so um, I'm not... I'm not always sure whether we exist in a worse world or a better one, um, but I do think there's been an important shift. Okay, so there's a lot to think about and talk about in what you've just said. Number one, we talked about the first meaning of the bullshit in the sense that it's incessant and constant. Yeah. But let's talk about the second meaning, truthfulness. The news is less truthful than it has ever been. The bigger the story, the less likely it is that you're going to get the truth on it. If it's a war, if it's a pandemic, if it's a scandal involving 
the presidency of the United States, you can be sure you're not getting the truth. Almost sure of it. In, in fact, in the last few years, I can't think of a giant, you know, multi-month story that has been reported accurately. Any story that has the capacity to move the energy of the United States populace is usually treated as an attempt in behave, at behavior modification rather than truth-telling. Um, I, I, I still despair of f- figuring out what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, I know that what went on with COVID was not reported truthfully, almost from the beginning. I know that what was reported about uh, Donald Trump's alleged ties to Russia was not reported truthfully. I know that in almost every case, the stories that move elections have not been reported truthfully. Um, and, and I'm being very, very serious here. You mentioned the Hunter Biden laptop. It was treated as though it didn't exist or it was some kind of foreign operation, neither of which it was. Um, the reason that they have come up with this so-called disinformation industry that constantly polices, monitors, grooms, and uh, you know censors the news is because it's so false most of the time that to defend it against people calling bullshit on it has become an industry. There is literally an industry that keeps people from correcting what they're reading or countering it. I mean, it, it involves academics, it involves elements of the government, and so on. It has never been less reliable. And in fact, I entertain the hypothesis that reading the news is a net negative, um, especially the national news. They don't use that space. They don't use those headlines to inform anymore. They use them to modify behavior. That's their chief reason to exist. All those stories are really levers for the manipulation of the population. One of the reasons that the truth is unpopular is that it sets equal, everyone on an equal footing. You can all, you, you all have an equal power when you're all in possession of the truth. But half-truths and lies cause people who know the truth to be in an advantageous position constantly vis-a-vis those who hear the misconceptions and, and, and the stories. And I am radical in this belief now, and I didn't used to be this way. I think you are better not knowing it than knowing it. I, I think that it's a vain attempt on the part of the American population to think that it can take big news about war, pandemics, presidential politics, and so on, and figure out what the truth underlying them is. It can't. By the time those stories reach you, they have been engineered, re-engineered, tested, and uh, falsified in a way that is meant to put you at a disadvantage. Mark Twain said, you know, it's better to be uninformed than misinformed. And I completely agree. And I don't hold out much hope for what we used to call the mainstream media. I think it's a propaganda factory. It's pretty easily identified as such. It never lasts in its 
propaganda lines more than a couple months. One of the ways that you know how cynical it is is that it will once the once the time for action is passed, say with COVID, it'll come in and tell you something a little more truthful than it did before because now you've all taken the vaccine. Now you've all locked yourselves down. Now you've closed all your schools. Now it can tell you something a little bit more uh, honest because you already made the decisions that it wished you to make in the past based on that 1.0 version of the story. I, I, I mean, I di didn't think as a reporter I would get to the point where I thought what, what we do, at least in its largest mass form, is a bad thing. And I think it's a bad thing. I think that it's not possible to fully understand what you just described about the function of the news now without appreciating at the individual level how powerful it is to enforce a consensus, how powerful a, a, an emotional pull there is to enforce a consensus. Having worked in a number of newsrooms and having witnessed precisely the sort of narrative generation that you're describing, Walter, where uh, sort of pseudo events are manufactured and then disseminated and then can pivot on a dime from, you know, this narrative version, uh, don't wear masks, it's, it's dangerous to wear masks, it's racist to wear masks, it's racist to believe that the uh, virus might have originated in Wuhan, can all of a sudden pivot and the, the sort of normative position can change dramatically. That's, in my experience, not occurring at the level of individual reporters or even at the level of newsrooms through uh, explicit top-down coordination where the junior science reporter who's claiming that it's racist to uh, consider the possibility that uh, COVID originated in the virology, military virology, bioweapons institute in Wuhan. I don't think that that person has a sort of self-conscious understanding of their role as a, an enforcer of regime propaganda per se. But the enforcing of consensus is unbelievably powerful. To be on the side of the people who are applying the lever and determining what can and can't be said has a kind of a difficult to describe uh, allure and it is really seductive and it pulls people in. And my reading of the bullshit is that, you know, as the line about like pumping out these stories in Time Magazine based on you know, half-baked social science and inserting all these caveats at the end about, hey, it might not be true, but it's still worth talking about, is that it seems to me implicitly acknowledges it's not that there was some pure uh, objectivity or, or a pure truth being achieved in the halcyon days of the, the sort of establishment press, but there was a kind of milder, a mild bullshit that served to establish the common ground on which people could have 
meaningful social and civic interaction as equals. Right. And, and, you know, the truth may create an equal setting for that, but like a mild half truth probably also creates uh, some opportunity for that. What you get now is the consensus, the shared common ground is itself pure bullshit, pure manipulation, pseudo reality such that, yeah, you're right, Phil, you may be able as an individual researcher to access more information than ever before. And in that sense, you're at a qualitative advantage. And I, I'm not trying to compare one era to another but, but, as if, but, you know, the 90s was some. Uh, right. But, you know, Phil. Good, Walter. You're right that you might be able to, and especially if you're already somewhat informed, you know where to go. You know, if it's something, if it's a topic about which you know a few things where you have a few basic solid starting points, you can, with research, get far now. But that's temporary, man. They're doing everything they can to, they're doing everything they can to make that difficult. In fact, to make it impossible. Um, I mean, I do a podcast every week with Matt Taibbi, and uh, he looked deeply into the basic interface between government authority and social media. And every story, every revelation that he came up with pointed in one direction. They are doing all that they possibly can, and they will now assist it with artificial intelligence to make sure there is no way around their narratives. And that if you should come up with a variant conclusion, you'll be silenced. So, so, so I think we're in an accidental age of, uh, of fruitful individual research. I think it was probably a better time for that maybe three years ago. But the truth was that if you applied that formula to COVID, God forbid you came up with a uh, sincere but uh, variant version of the truth because you got kicked off. I don't. I don't. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true in the slightest. Uh, you know, throughout COVID, you were aware that there were contentious political debates about what was correct. I think that you know one of the points that you make in your essay in the slightest that- they kicked off thousands, tens of thousands of people. So they, they, they banned whole YouTube channels. They banned they banned guys who did weightlifting videos for suggesting that there were other ways to stay healthy during COVID. They banned their whole channels. I mean, that's just the sure. bans. The, the censorship of individual posts is exponentially higher than that. Also, sure, sure. I mean, dude, there, there, there are there are uh, things like the Stanford Internet Observatory and so on that are getting grants of tens of millions of dollars to automate this process. It's huge. There are people, there are intelligence agents by the, and former law enforcement agents by the dozens, by the hundreds inside social media. This isn't disputable. You know what their job is? Their job isn't to dig for the truth. Their job is to shut people up. So you, you, you write that the information that it imparts, if one bothers to sift through it, is information about itself, about the purposes, beliefs, and loyalties of those who produce it, the informing class. One, and I do think that that's true. I think in some ways that's always been true. The, 
I also no, think that the inf- I, I think that the informant- CIA directors on TV telling outright lies with consulting contracts on major uh, on major networks that are that I mean, go the, on the, like national security heard. officials getting the news to parrot total BS is 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 not a new product of of the you know digital age. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy, so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house, and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller, and all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radios, and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to riot. I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. So, I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. I want you to get up right now. Get up, go to your windows, open them, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Things have got to change. How many stations does this go out? You've got to get mad. I know it goes to Louisville. The, um... And I think that the informing class, when you when you write it like that, it makes it sound like it is one unified thing. But one of the reasons that COVID policies um, that that we're talking about it is it throughout the entirety of the pandemic, it was a subject of political debate, and so the correct policies. And one of the reasons that these things were so zealously enforced was because there was ideological dissension, right? Um, and Jake, you're right. At, at, at one point, you know, there's that, I think it was, it was either Bill de Blasio or, or somebody in the, in the uh, New York city government who was like, don't, you know, it's like racist to wear a mask to, if, you know, to not go to um, Chinese New Year or whatever it was. was it, yes, not to go to Chinese New Year's. It was right. Bill then, de Blasio who said that. And then a little bit later, the sort of... And his health commissioner, shifted. by the way. Health and the New York yeah. City health commissioner. Right. Yeah. And then the ideological ground shifted and it was, you know, you needed to have a maximalist policy. And even though, you know, from the beginning, you know, the children weren't really affected and there were other countries that were adopting a very different approach to, to schools, you know, if you were a right thinking person, you were supposed to uh, support a sort of mass, maximum position on school closures. But like, even during the time, um, I thought that was absurd. And, and, and I've written about this. Uh, uh, and I thought it was absurd because of things that I was reading in the news. Right. Yeah. But Phil, to say that your well, ability oh, you to find it absurd that. constitutes a meaningfully free and open discourse is ignoring the fact that the parody you're suggesting, like, hey, we're all just debating these, simply doesn't exist. One side has the power of the state and mass censorship and a mass apparatus of thought control on its side. Explicitly, one side has that. And the opposition simply doesn't have that. So the continued residual existence of dissenting opinion 
is not itself per force evidence of meaningful openness and meaningfully free society, meaningful self-government. You're saying like it suggests a unity that doesn't exist, but the whole, as I've written about extensively, Go ahead, Walter. Let's yeah. talk about the military. Is there not a commanding class just because soldiers bitch and disagree and have gossip about other things being true doesn't mean there isn't a, an attempt to command them. There's an informing class. I can tell I can I've worked in this business for 40, 40 solid years. If, if there's not an informing class, then I'm an ass. It starts very high at the top. And you and now as we've excavated what happened during COVID, you can literally see the emails of the five people who are on top at, you know, the CDC or whatever. Fauci and Collins. Shutting down down whole areas of inquiry as 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 as, uh, explicitly as you want to see any order being being Shut, shutting down whole areas of inquiry and feeding the narrative that they wanted into the prestige science journals so that the proximate origins paper so that at the same time they're shutting down one whole area of inquiry which we know from these internal emails the scientists themselves who are involved in this internally are expressing doubt right Internally in their emails, they're saying, hey, we can't rule out lab leak externally to the public based on information being given them by Fauci and Collins. They're telling a completely different story. That's a unity of effort. That's a a unprecedented merger of state power and media. You know, it's, it's not that there's never been an informing class before. It has never been so fully merged with the bureaucracy and the security state is how I see it. Time magazine in 1964, through the darkness from the West and the South, intruders boldly sped, at least six of them, they opened fire on the destroyers with automatic weapons, this time from as close as 2,000 yards. There's no doubt in Sharp's mind that the U.S. would now have to answer this attack in the Gulf of Tonkin. This has always been the case, and this is- I'm not defending any of the things that you just said, right? I'm just saying, the 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 and 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 certainly you know i mean we've already had this this debate between ourselves i think that a lot of these things need to be pushed back against and there are not just sort of like informed consumer things that one should do in order to push back against these sort of things but there there are political changes that we need to make um like because what? i am i am disturbed by the sorts of uh, collusion between the government and social media organs to try and control public opinion, right? I think those efforts are fundamentally doomed, right? Um, I don't Why think do that you, you think can they're doomed. There's the, well, at the moment there is absolute there is one legal case going on down south, Missouri, one legal case challenging the right to do this. A year ago, there was the pretense that it didn't even happen. Uh, no, no, no. So, so, sorry, I, I don't mean doomed in terms of the, the government's going to stop doing them. I think that the effort to, I don't, I don't think that the effort to control public opinion in this way, especially in the country like the United States, uh, yeah. is ultimately going to be 
I, I think that sort of thing leads to backlash. And, and yeah, but Soviet totalitarianism was doomed in the long run. It was a, a fairly unfortunate course of events. Comparing this to Soviet totalitarianism is kind of ridiculous. Well, comparing it to the Gulf of Tonkin, comp- saying that because there have been official lies in the past, nothing meaningfully has changed, is I think uh, is this is like I, I, my I'm, point- in, I'm in agreement with you that things have changed, and I think that the social media aspect of it, I think there's a radically different way that we consume news, right? I actually think that the ideological content is much more front and center in people's mind, right? So in, in you know, when I read that, that, that bit from Hegel about like knowing where one stands, right? The, the, I think the shift that we're talking about is previously one thought one knew where one stood because one felt they had a kind of like uh, non-ideological picture of the world. Now, I don't think that was yeah, actually yeah. true. I don't think they were getting a non-ideological picture of the world. Um, but nevertheless, I think that was the assumption. I think people know now that the ideology is much more front and forward. They think that the ideology does, in fact, mean truth, right? And, of course, during you know the, the, the 90s, you had talk radio and other sorts of things that are fulfilling a similar function. Um, and... And I think it's actually a, it's it's a much more kind of raucous uh, debate right now. The same sorts of technologies that the government is using to try and you know sort of censor speech about COVID were also the means by which I found dissenting information about it, right? And not like I'm doing no 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 no, like- no 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 that's categorically <laughs> not true. It's not true. The means by which the government was censoring information about COVID, which was a mass super funded conglomerate of some of the most powerful institutions of the country. Okay. Stanford university, Graphica, an organization that was founded uh, through the defense department and DARPA to do counter messaging against jihadists. These are not, and, and which used uh, artificial intelligence algorithms and a very large staff of monitors who flagged and categorized narratives for censorship is simply not the same means as what you were what you were using to access information the government had on its side an enormous back end apparatus built into the infrastructure of the internet in ways that were invisible and we still wouldn't know about if not for you know the twitter files lawsuits other disclosures where they were manipulating what the public could see at a at a scale which you could not possibly imagine that's and the, yet i lived through it that's and yet not the, the entire thing. thing i was aware of scientific evidence on the other side of, of the sorts of policies that were being pushed. And I wasn't Phil, like you're doing internet sleuthing. Phil, you're a journalist. <laughs> you don't represent anything but 0.05% of the audience that you are, that, I mean, it, it, it's, it, and so am I, and so are all of us sitting here. But let's look at the actual behavior that resulted from these efforts. Schools were closed. Um, churches were closed, businesses were closed, social media accounts were canceled by the hundreds of thousands. Yeah, journalists can get around the internet and those who are specifically motivated can, can look in all kinds of places. They were shutting them down as fast as they could though. 
and the discussion that resulted from them is itself policed. You know what we didn't used to have? We used to have people giving orders, but we didn't have the ability to actual actually modify the conversation around stories. Now, 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 once you've got everything moving through these wires or, you know, these wireless routes or whatever, you literally have the ability to in, uh, inject fake, fake uh, actors, fake agents, bots. You have the ability to boost and de-boost certain responses. And you have the ability to just memory whole, whole things. Dude, let's look at the Hunter Biden laptop. Okay. The New York Post has its entire account taken off a major social media. Okay. Who picked up the Hunter Biden laptop story after that? It was a huge story. It was a huge story. No, now, if you, if, you were on the, if you were on the left, you assumed that it was a Russian disinformation op, right? It wasn't just the left. It's not just the left. There was a story about a laptop. Did it exist or didn't it? Okay. Let's say it exists. Is it fake or is it real? Who broke rank on that? No one. And the one place that did got silenced. That is a development that did not exist. It simply didn't. And we have to think about instead and, of and that I won't hoping like, it goes away. But I don't think that that I don't that didn't kill the story. Right? No, no, no. It changed the conversation. So the story was. Is the laptop Russian disinformation? <laughs> it, killed Not, it, it, killed, it killed it enough to, to affect an election. It killed I, it enough. I, I, I don't know about that. I mean, in, in some ways, it made the story bigger. Not. But who anyway, whether, who cares whether it's true or not? Now, <laughs> the time at which it was yeah. uh, the time at which it was potentially change making passed, and due to a multi pronged effort involving government, private, academic even military actors. I, I, I think I was, I was, it was immediately an issue of discussion. I mean, and, and, and controversy. I, I, to, it's difficult to say. I, my sense during the time was that it, it was such an extreme action that it, that it certainly f for me promote, provoked more backlash in October. Right. Um, it became, so, I think it became, on, man. That, that's just, that's, that's a, you're seeking you're seeking a way to preserve no, 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 the kind no, no. of appearance. Look, I'm not saying that that's a, a good thing. I think it's terrible. No, but, but saying that there was still discussion of the laptop is a, a not a meaningful concession to the truth. Meaningfully, what was important was not the existence of a laptop that may or may not be Russian disinformation which is the debate that actually occurred. Meaningfully, what was important was the information contained in that laptop bearing on the business dealings, both of the president's son and his father, the president. That debate simply never happened. D private DMs containing links to the Post's reporting were censored. The FBI visits Mark Zuckerberg in that, that summer, months before the election to warn him of, of an upcoming Russian hack and leak operation. This was a coordinated suppression effort that was hugely successful. They gamed, they gamed it out at the Aspen Institute. You don't believe in an informing class, then you must not believe in the Aspen Institute. Because and, and, but, and, but by the way, but I, and, and I think this is one of the reasons there's a tremendous distrust, 
right now. Like, I think that the the public does actually learn to feel a certain amount of contempt for the bullshit. But anyway, we, we should we should move on because we could debate this particular issue. This is an old debate between Jake and I. Yeah, I want to ask Walter a question. Yes, go for it. I want to ask Walter a question because to come back to a, a point uh, Phil made a while ago, how do you, looking back, see the function of the Time magazines, let's say take Time magazine sort of in the generic sense of like the a different kind, not an informing class, but a consensus establishing class. What's the relationship between that and the truth? Because I think that one of the points you make in this piece that I found very compelling was like you, you get into this sort of you evoke how seductive it can be to get into a kind of counter hermeneutics, right? Like yeah. rather than just withdrawing from the news, I'm going to decode the news. I'm going to I'm going to crack the code and get to the truth, assuming there's any truth in there at all. And, you know, this is my point to you, Phil, is like the problem with saying as individual researchers, we have more access is the thing you're researching is itself a red herring. So, like, what good does that do you? But all that being said, looking back, Walter, when you when you think about what you were doing there, Mm -hmm. how do you how do you understand it? Right. It wasn't quite the truth. You're, You're saying you were selling these sort of half-baked social science things. So was that not in its own way sort of uh, an almost like, you know, paternalistic attitude toward the public? Hey, we're going to give you this benign bullshit uh, to, to provide you with an authoritative view of the world. How do you see that now? Well, of course it was paternalistic. It was as paternalistic as it gets. The Henry Luce Time magazine empire was paternalism on wheels. It had a slightly different objective because technology and society were slightly different. Most news is pitched at at, at informing you before you make a decision. A decision about what food to eat, who to vote for, whether to back a war or not, whether to take a medicine or a vaccine or not. The news is only useful in in its cash value in in that it informs a decision that you make. It's not just entertainment. It's supposed to prepare you to make better choices. Once the choices have been made and once the time for making them is over, then then who cares what happens? You know, who cares if reporting on an election is honest once the election is over? Who cares if the risks of a vaccine are discussed openly once you've all taken it? Who cares if, you know, COVID is this or that once the point at which we might have challenged uh, the people who made it to tell the truth has passed? Now, in the Time Magazine days, when... And I often hear a lot of nostalgia for old Walter Cronkite and, you know, baby boomer consensus. And, and, and you know, I, I'm, it was as artificial as this thing is. On that, I'll agree. And they managed to get us into a whole damn Vietnam War on the basis of some lies told by some ship's commanders that were, you know, always agreed on. They didn't happen accidentally. It was a policy. You know, uh, they, they made a pretext, they followed it, they 
stayed in line and they got a war out of it. You know, they kept doing that well into the 90s. You know, the kind of thing Time did was very helpful in launching something like mm, Desert Storm and even even Iraq War II. But now it's a now manufacturing consent doesn't involve getting a whole lot of people to do the same thing. It involves getting various factions and coalitions to do things so that it has the same effect. It, it's, it's, a, it's a matter of different weapons systems, really. We've got different weapon systems now. Uh, they're much more granular. They're much more focused. They, they're much more dynamic in some ways. But, they're, but their essential job is to get the, have the powers that be get their way. And the problem is, is that the, it used to be at the production end that the engineering went on. You know, it was the stories themselves. But now, it's, now they've got weapons to enforce discipline at the consumption end. And mm -hmm. at the, you know, and, and so now whether you see it, whether you're allowed to repeat it, whether you are allowed to, you know, use certain words in the discussion of it, all of that can be policed. It was a, it was a crude instrument in the old days. And now it's a, you know, something that only Philip K. Dick could have imagined because it's so multi-pronged, so um, silent in some ways, so comprehensive. And hoping that backlash occurs so that it stops is a great hope. I hope that happens too. But believe me, they're front running the backlash. In fact, their whole industry is about anticipating and neutralizing that backlash. And they're pretty damn good of it, good at it. And they've got the kind of people and the kind of machines and the kind of thinking uh, in place to stop it, to deflect it, to neutralize it. And so that process of, you know, pendulum swinging and, and things balancing themselves out that we all used to depend on and sort of rely on as the natural order of things is going to be abrogated quite intentionally. And they're doing all they can to get there. Yeah. You know, that's uh, Jacques Ellul's uh the foundation of propaganda, according to Jacques Ellul, is the that sort of pre-ideological shared assumption building. And um, it's like in the old, days, in the old yeah. days, they let the propaganda do its work. Now they can listen to how you react to it, and they can, in a feedback loop, adjust it for certain groups. And 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 make it dynamic over time. Hey, they aren't buying this one. We've got, you know, at Time Magazine, you know how we knew what right readers thought of our story. We waited a freaking month for some few letters and postcards to come in, and we tried to divine from those letters and postcards whether what we'd said had had, had been influential or had problems or had created resistance. We had some guesses around newsstand sales about whether or not our covers were, you know, appealing or so on. Dude, now they have granular real-time 
how many clicks, how many read throughs information about this stuff. And it's becoming not just, um, it's not a blunt instrument anymore. It's a very refined instrument. And uh, rather than hope that we're going to turn against it, I want to create a space in which we can turn against it because they're, they're shutting down not even, not even that possibility, except for maybe some intellectuals and so on. People don't know what they don't see. And once you have completely uh, policed their reaction, their ability to repost, once you've manipulated that, once you have created a machine that constantly reviews the effectiveness and targets it and refines it, you've got an inescapable world in which it's impossible to call bullshit on things. That's a good a good transition right there. Um, wh- when is it and is it not possible to call bullshit seems to have been a particular preoccupation of Mr. Twain's. So I think, uh, Walter, I had originally suggested to you that maybe we would talk about on the decay of the art of lying, which is sort of the uh, the progenitor of the Twain prose piece you picked, My First Lie and How I Got Out of It, which I think is published in 1889, about uh, seven or eight years after on the decay of the art of lying. Why did you pick this one? Is this something um, you know that had been bopping around in your head, or, or did it just seem to pair well with the bullshit? What were you thinking? I just picked this piece up about a week ago by accident in some giant compendium of Mark Twain essays. And it struck me like a lightning bolt because as usual with Twain, he makes a joking point that's incredibly serious. And, 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 and it's this, he says, why do we worry so much about lying? We define lying as what he calls a spoken lie, saying something that's untrue. When in fact, the biggest lies in the world are when no one says anything. He calls it the lies of silent assertion. And those are the lies of sort of social cowardice in which we go along with things that we know to be false quietly, year after year, even decade after decade. Um, And yet the things that get prosecuted, that get called out, that cause horror socially, or when somebody says, you know, oh, I, I only spent $10 on a new dress, but it costs 40, you know, uh, he, he, he kind of, he, he kind of wonders at the fact that we continue to abhor the specific lie while we live inside the silent lie. And to me, you know, it's accidentally very relevant to my essay, but it's a, it's a profound point about consensus in general, because most consensus consists of just not talking about things. Can can I read the bit about uh, the bit from the essay about that? Yeah, Um, go ahead. I'm speaking of the lie of silent assertion. We can tell it without saying a word and we all do it. We that know. In the magnitude of its territorial spread, it is one of the most majestic lies that the civilizations make it their sacred and anxious care to guard and watch and propagate. For instance, 
It would not be possible for a humane and intelligent person to invent a rational excuse for slavery. Yet you will remember that in the early days of the emancipation agitation in the North, the agitators got but small help or countenance from anyone. Argue and plead and pray as they might, they could not break the universal stillness that reigned from pulpit and press all the way down to the bottom of society, the clammy stillness created and maintained by the lie of silent assertion, the silent assertion that there wasn't anything going on in which humane and intelligent people were interested. Phil, had you read this before? No, I had not. And I've read a lot of Twain. But, um, yeah, no, me either. I, I, this was the first time reading it, and uh, God damn, it's good, man. Mark Twain, huh? Oof. <laughs> it, um, I, I just the ability to like the magnitude of the spread, the range of the prose, right? Yeah. Like the and the way it goes from sort of you know, storytelling mode, anecdotal storytelling mode, lighthearted to, you know, allegorical to rhetorical to it's just my, you know, what, what, what an impressive thing and profound in its way. But I'll be honest with you. I was, what stuck with me was less the, the profundity of the point and more just the, the verve and the style and the self-assuredness of it. You know, Kipling said of, uh, of um, Twain said, I love to think of the great and godlike Clemens. He's the biggest man you have on your side of the water by a damn sight. And don't you forget it. Cervantes was a relation of his. And Twain kind of felt the same. And I, I believe they met. I think Kipling mm -hmm. came to the uh, U S on a, on a lecture tour at some point. And, and Twain and he met, they did regard each other. At, and Twain was a real Anglophile. You got to remember Twain, Twain loved British uh, literature, British culture. Um, you know, as much as he pretended to be this anarchistic or this Democrat, you know, liberal American, he had a lot of affection for, I, I think, the old British snobbery. And to be acclaimed by Kipling in the way he was, I think, caused him no end of uh, delight. You know, Twain was a guy who, like I say, though he was a gadfly and seemed always to be, you know, making fun of people. He loved addressing big dinners of worthies. He, he, he loved it, pomp and circumstance. He was always trying to get rich with some invention of become, by becoming a big publisher. He, he was a complicated. He was a complicated individual. I agree with you on the virtuosity of this piece. It is impressive, but one of the witty things about it that sticks with me as both profound and funny is his assertion that we live by lying. Uh, yeah. You know, his first lie, the first lie he's referring to is he says, when I was 90, nine days old, I learned that uh, once when I had a pin sticking in me as a baby and I cried, I got all this attention. And, and so my first lie was pretending a pin was sticking in me. So I got a lot of attention. And uh, and he says, well, that lie was ruined for mankind when the safety pin was invented you know it's his joke but but he but he suggests that he says 98 percent of lies i don't know quite how he 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 
expresses this thought are lies of action rather than, you know, articulation. And, and what he wants us to know is that dissembling, artifice, pretending is how we get along in the world. Um, yeah. Twain is often wanting human beings to confess how fallen they are and, yeah. and get used to it because he seems to think it's more dangerous to pretend we're better than we are than to admit how fallen we are. There's, there's a kind of like, um, almost like sort of Nietzsche quality where he's looking at the edifice of what civilization says morality is. And he's just like, that's all BS. Like, it's just nonsense. We lie to ourselves about the codes that we claim we actually live by. And, um, the, uh, the, in The Mysterious Stranger is, Sitton calls humanity, a paltry race, always lying, always claiming virtues, which it hasn't got, inspired by that mongrel moral sense of his, a sense whose function is to distinguish between right and wrong, with liberty to choose which of them he will do. Now what advantage can he get out of that? He's always choosing, and in nine cases out of ten he prefers the wrong. There shouldn't be any wrong, and without the moral sense, there couldn't be any. And yet he's such an unreasonable creature that he's not able to perceive that the moral sense degrades him to the bottom layer of animated beings and is a shameful possession. You know, he had, Twain had two, uh, m more than two, but really fundamentally two um, maxims about human beings and morality and conscience. One was, he called it uh, corn pone opinions, that almost everyone's opinions arise from how they get their money, you know, depending, depending on where you get your corn pone, meaning your money, your food, your opinions are going to suit them. Very, very few people have beliefs that are at variance with what they do. Very few people go, you know, um, I hate my, I, I, I'm an investment banker, but money's a sin. You won't meet me yeah. like that. His second one is that the most powerful force in, in human behavior is the need for self-approval. And, and, and that, that he almost suggests that most morality is a game that allows people to feel good about themselves and is, has very little to do with a deep sense of what's right and what's wrong. Um, so sometimes he... Sometimes he's so cynical about human beings that you think, oh, my gosh, if we all believed as Mark Twain did, could we even get on as a society? But he suggests that it's more dangerous to believe we're angels than to know right. we're devils, because at least a devil can every once in a while commit a generous act or try to be honest or do something kind. But when you believe you're angels, then all your unkindnesses, all your lies, all your half-truths, all your deceptions are somehow permissible. Also, you know, the angels are a humorless race, you know? So if you want to be able to laugh at least a little bit in this life, you better acknowledge that there are things worth laughing at. Yeah, this right. is, that was one of the, uh, I forget quite how he phrases it, but, you know, he, he makes the point here that the dissembling lie, the fun lie, you know, we deny ourselves in, deny, in going along with these lies of silent assertion, where, for instance, we turn and look the other way at the institution of slavery or, or whatever, we, 
we go along with uh, the lies that undergird our civilization, but refusing to tell an active lie because that would be sinful. It's not just that we're hypocrites. We, we can't have fun because there's a fun kind of lie to tell, which is right. less sinful, less wicked. And, and we can't even, can't even get that. I mean, he delighted in it, obviously. But yeah, and uh, in the, I think it's in the decay of the art of lying where he's like, there's no difference between an injurious lie and an injurious truth, right? They're both injurious. They're both wrong. It doesn't, well, doesn't elevate know, the, back truth to our, the truth. Back to our talk about the press. I, I feel I was hard on Phil because possibly because <laughs> I've been spent the last year in the company of Matt Taibbi, who has just dug <laughs> deeper and deeper into levels of you know, corruption and deception and collusion in ways that have shocked even me and left me a bit of a hardcore, uh, you know, hardcore doomster on the subject of the press. But but to Phil's point that nothing has really changed, we have to bring Mark Twain in as evidence. And, and, and Twain believed back when, because he started his career writing for newspapers, and what he did for these little newspapers out in Nevada territory and these mining camps is he wrote these kind of local color stories. And they were completely invented, completely made up. And, and, and not only did he say it's better to be uninformed than misinformed, he said, if you've ever read something in the pr press about a subject you know something about, you know that they can never be believed. Um, so... It was a little bit more like the, the third version of bullshit, you know, that you were talking about earlier. Like he knew that the press's job was to amuse and entertain and he didn't really expect much more of it, you know. Um, and, and so uh, in some ways, we probably progressed since Twain's time, because I don't think there was any mechanism to enforce truthfulness in the press in those days. Uh, people just made shit up. And if it worked, they made more of it up. And different papers had entirely different versions of the same stories, depending on what their publishers, you know, whether their publisher was running for office or something. And so, you know, we may have climbed out of the total slime pit of Twain's day in the press to some slightly higher prominence before starting this latest skid. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know uh, if I see it as a vertical ascent necessarily. Maybe uh, there's been movement, certainly, but it might be latitudinal or something. I, you know, the the um, the the function of the press. Then I, I don't. I'm. I have gotten deeply cynical about this stuff. I must say, and I've gotten cynical going backward. Also, it's not just that I think. I'm better off without this bullshit now. Right. I I feel I cast my eyes back and I think and I think to myself, well, if I want to be intellectually consistent here, I, I recognize that the mechanisms of uh, manufacturing consent have grown infinitely more powerful, but the motives haven't changed. And so when I look back, I have to, well, now I have to rigorously re-examine all of these things that had maybe just been, you know, sort of comforting foundational lies. And that is so, I get so disheartened at the prospect of having to do that, 
Then I say to hell with all of it. I just, I, what the hell do I need the news for? I mean, I'm a news editor, you know, I'm tablets news editor. And I, I generally try to avoid reading the news. I don't think it does me any good, even as the news editor. Let, let me tell you, let me tell you a little cautionary tale. It's actually included at the end of the essay, the bullshit. Um, when COVID was going on in May, 2020, my father was dying of ALS. My dad was a patent attorney who'd gone to a law school in Washington, D.C. when Kennedy was assassinated. And my dad was a law clerk in the same building that housed the Associated, Associated Press. And the day Kennedy was shot, he heard a ruckus down at the AP, ran in, and he saw all the teletypes spilling out page after page of first reports from Dallas. Um, so he was a lawyer in Washington at that time, as I say, and he spent a long career uh, as a patent attorney for a big corporation, 3M Corporation. And uh, on his deathbed, dying of this terrible disease, very uncomfortable, he looked at me and he said, you know, we still don't know what happened. He'd been studying it his whole life. Very educated guy. He said, we still don't know what happened. I know that the, I know that the, the consensus story is bullshit for various reasons. I don't know who did it. I don't know why it happened. And I thought, wow, what a testimony to failure is the fact that the biggest event of my father's young life, one that changed the country, changed his life, what he was 20, he was 25, starting out as an attorney, you know, a pretty patriotic guy from Ohio. That story is still somehow up in the air. They still aren't releasing all the documents they could on it. There's still 10 books with 10 different theories. A lot of the people who maybe could have been somewhat convincing on the matter are dead, most of them. And I, and I thought, why did he waste, why do any of us waste our, our time on these stories? My dad probably wasted months of his life trying to figure out what happened to John F. Kennedy, the biggest story, like I say, of his youth, and he never got anywhere. What if he had just gone fishing instead? You know, it, it caused me to radically question whether, whether mainstream news as a way of knowing is anything but a waste of time because he hadn't been able to he hadn't been able to, nor had anyone who was looking into this come to a satisfying conclusion. The allure, like the, the pull of the pattern matching, the pull of the puzzle solving, which is so deeply embedded in the human being, the desire to solve the puzzle is so much of, of who we are as human beings. And there's a particularly American pull to it, you know, as well, I think. Each of us, uh, an individual before God, each of us, you know, alone in the frontier with God as our only judge. We think we can arrive at the truth by ourselves. We think it's our duty to arrive at the truth by ourselves. And, you know, on the one hand, they should release the damn files already. They, you know, on the one hand, I'm for radical transparency 
in this sort of thing. And um, Trump has promised to do it a dozen times. If he ever gets the opportunity, I, I hope he does. Biden's never promised to do it, but I hope he does it as well, release the, the full Kennedy files. On the other hand, what difference does it make? You know, like that desire to pattern match unto the ultimate truth is time that could have been spent fishing, time that could have been spent, I don't know, uh, accessing other kinds of truth. And well, people I, like the, it. That's why they do it. I mean, I know, I know. It's so, it's unbelievably powerful, but I, I don't know. I think that the information environment that we're in being at this point, something like an elaborate rigged puzzle plays off of that natural inclination toward puzzle solving, pattern matching, and that we have to find ways to resist that temptation because what what will you get from solving that particular puzzle? Not that much, I'm afraid. Words, words, high air castles are cunningly built of words, the words well bedded also in good logic mortar, wherein, however, no knowledge will come to lodge. This so solid seeming world, after all, were but an air image, our me, the only reality. That's Carlyle, who Kipling really loved. Um, who Twain, Twain goes after repeatedly. Sorry, yeah. Twain, yeah. <laughs> Twain actually mentions Carlyle in, in the essay we just uh, spoke. I mean, Twain, yeah, Twain loved it, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. because one of the things that Twain uh, disputes is the uh, nostrum that uh, a lie will always be find, found out, that the truth will always come to the surface. He says, bullshit. <laughs> you know, I, I found that in my life, too. I wrote a book about a murderer who murdered two people, okay? One of their bodies was found, one was never found. Uh, if people say, oh, he was inevitably going to be caught, and I thought, no, one of the bodies was never found. If he'd only murdered that person, he'd still be walking around. Uh, he did a good job with that one. He did a bad job on the other. If he'd only done the one that was a good job, I was like, there are murderers walking around all the time who, where truth hasn't come out. The idea that this kind of quasi-religious metaphysical faith that that lies will always be discovered and, and that the truth is this great force that can always emerge no matter what after a certain amount of time, maybe a long time. Twain challenges that. And that's a fundamental thing that I think even people who think of themselves as sophisticated kind of believe. Um, uh you know, but, 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 you know, there, there, we found out that Gulf of Tonkin was bullshit. Okay. Or that, 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 that incident was bullshit, but we use, there's other ones that we haven't found out about. I'm quite confident about it. And that's what's so destabilizing about what Twain asserts, which is that, you know, there is nothing privileged about the truth that causes it ultimately to win the day. I don't think he believes it does. I think he kind of thinks it's the opposite. Um, I think he thinks that only by reconciling yourself to the inevitability, the necessity of the lie, can you, can you, like, that's the more moral position. I <laughs> yeah. think, in, in, in his autobiography, he says, anybody can tell lies. There's no merit in a mere lie. <laughs> it, it must possess art. <laughs> I have a question for Phil as a Marine, yeah. as a veteran. Are you satisfied yet through 
the news that you know why you went to war in Iraq? I think that... um... I guess I should frame it slightly different. You actually went there and you found things out. But if you had been going on the reporting Mm -hmm. scene and so on, do you feel that it was accurately and in a way that people can really rely on communicated? I think that... Um, the, I don't think that the effort to get to the truth of something is necessarily, um, fated to succeed, nor do I think that it's an impossible thing. And I think that we can get, um, we can get accurate windows or partially accurate windows that we can do things with. I mean, do I understand the entire truth of that went into creating any historical event? No, I don't think so. Um, but I think you get, uh, sort of different, um, glimpses of reality that you can act on in meaningful ways. Uh, so so do you think at at the point at which we acted as a nation, at the point at which we, sent troops we knew enough to make a good decision no but at the same time i don't think that you i mean look i we shouldn't have invaded iraq so this is and and there's a whole amount of kind of nefarious bullshit um that is involved in in in, in that uh as well as other things the That's different from thinking that, um, you know, did we have enough information to act? I think we had enough information to not act, right? And we acted nonetheless. Okay. I got to take a crack at this as well. Um, So what I have come to, you know, this is... uh, I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I I was in Iraq and then later in Afghanistan. And my experience in Afghanistan was actually much more um, disenchanting or I don't know what the word is, cynicism inducing in the terms you're describing, Walter, than Iraq was. There was so much heat around Iraq. There was so much sort of positive, willful energy towards doing something, it's easier for me to make sense of the lies and manipulations that led to the invasion of Iraq. They make, they're they're more strictly intelligible and comprehensible in a way that relates to the Gulf of Tonkin incident, for instance. So I see Iraq in some sense as being more of a, maybe the last gasp of that old system, the last great lie of that old system. I was in Afghanistan in 2012, and I knew that everything being said about Afghanistan in the public record at that point was categorically untrue. And it's one of the, you know, one of the first articles I wrote about Afghanistan, my first published article as a journalist after coming back in 2013 was about how the Afghan national security forces were, you know, a paper army, a ghost army, how they were already cutting deals with the Taliban. This was in 2013. 
And it's not because I had any privileged access to anything. So Iraq was easier for me to make sense of than Afghanistan going on for why, why in 2020 were we still in Afghanistan? I had a harder time still to this day. I have a harder time understanding and explaining. Unfortunately, what just to finish the thought, what I, what I ultimately, the really, um, The big conclusion that I was able to draw, though, was that the whole basis of informed consent was missing and was was simply not there. So the question of did we know enough to act presumes that we were acting. And I have lost my belief in that as the mechanism of those sorts of decisions. And uh, I believe in self-government in principle. So I would like to think that there is a way to get back to we acting based on uh, knowing about the world around us. But I don't think that's what was going on in either case. Right. Right. Good point. Important point. Phil, what were you saying? Uh, Oh, the Holbrook. Yeah. There's a bit in in the George Packer's book on Holbrook, uh, our man, where Obama asked all these like, unanswerable questions about what we're doing in Afghanistan and what the policy is supposed to achieve. And then we have the troop search nonetheless. It's kind of maddening. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Walter, this was uh, a pleasure for me, uh, an experience for Phil, I'm sure. And uh, it was wonderful, wonderful to have you, so you on. Yeah. And, and, great, and great I hope, uh, I never know. Yeah. I never know the topics on which I'm obviously spring loaded to explode, I guess. But, <laughs> uh, you know, hey, we're, we're Americans. We like a conversation. We don't mind when uh, when things get a bit heated. We like that. So thank you very much. That's the ideal. To me, Phil is living proof of the inadequacy of the news because he had to go and write a pretty com- complicated novel about uh, or, or you know, fiction, fiction about Iraq in order to get at the truth. If, can, if, can, can, can I give you something? No, that's the superiority of fiction, not the inadequacy of the news, though. That's this is f- fiction truth. is where you true get. Here, this is uh, I, I've been reading David Jones, the Anathemata, and this is this is his approach towards um, truth seeking, human truth seeking. Native wise and following the precepts precepts of the spindle side and taught by horse sense, yet primed of the nice embraces of sweet logic, I do affirm all that is comprised under mermaid is no mirage. The short and long being that in this matrix isle we hold to water maids, that there be no water maids you may tell to the marines man as man the horse at Troy, but be warned in your temerity. <laughs> so <laughs> keep your stay native native wise, follow the precepts of the spindle side. Horse sense and not too much, but some of the embraces of sweet logic and uh, just some of it. Yeah. And be warned and uh, keep your powder dry. Walter, thank you very much. Till next time. And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom. I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius.